Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm I'm going to argue that Christocentrism, which is a term that I will explain, but basically the idea of the singular focus on Christ, rescues us from empire. And that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his resistance to national socialism, or the empire of his time, gives us the fullest meaning of Christocentrism. That is, Martin Luther will also argue for Christocentrism, but it will prove inadequate. And so the focus of the book of Revelation is really aimed at resisting empire. In fact, the apocalyptic literature of the New Testament is all aimed at saying, how do we resist empire? And the Roman Empire is pictured here as the beast doing the bidding of Satan, the serpent, or the dragon in Revelation 13. So let's read Revelation 13, 1 to 4. And the dragon stood on the sand of the seashore. Then I saw a beast coming up out of the sea having ten horns and seven heads. And on his horns were ten diadems, and on his heads were blasphemous names. And the beast which I saw was like a leopard, and his feet were like those of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him power, and his throne, and great authority. I saw one of his heads as if it had been slain, and his fatal wound was healed. And the whole earth was amazed and followed after the beast. They worshipped the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast saying, Who is like the beast and who is able to wage war with him? And clearly the beast here, Rome, is not under the authority of God, but specifically is under the authority of Satan. And the Apostle John is writing to the seven churches in Asia. They're facing two threats. They're facing the threat of persecution, but they're also facing the threat of absorption. And we see this at the beginning of the book of Revelation, that some of them are willing to make friends with the beast. Some of them are willing to pledge allegiance to the beast. And so believers who decline to say their Roman pledge of allegiance by offering incense and pronouncing Caesar is Lord. Well, they were viewed as treasonous. They were in danger of losing their friends, in danger of losing their jobs, in danger of losing their lives. And the book of Revelation calls the Christians of that day back to worship of God and Christ, the Lamb who has been slain. And This is over and against the participation in the idolatrous worship. Just a little idolatry is the temptation. A little lukewarmness, as John will say. 
And on this basis, Christ is going to spew you out of his mouth. Each of the beast's heads had a blasphemous name, verse 1 here. And the symbolism clearly identifies the beast as the Roman Empire. You know, the beast has seven heads, ten horns, ten diadems, uh, blasphemous names. And the, the picture here, of a leopard, a bear, a lion... These are the same beasts that are described in Daniel chapter 7 verse 4 to 6 except it's in reverse order. And Daniel was looking into the future to see these kingdoms while John looks back on them as fulfilled history. And so maybe it's Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, the lion is you know, in Daniel, Medo-Persia, the bear in Daniel, Greece, the leopard and Rome, and maybe then the seventh one head here is a future revived Rome. And the Roman emperors we know were given divine titles. And the coins minted in Nero's reign, it actually says savior of the world. According to Suetonius, the emperor during the revelation was probably Domitian, and he was addressed as our Lord and God. So the very titles that Christ is going to take are the titles that the emperors would claim for themselves. And the Asian cities were among the foremost exponents of the emperor cult because they wanted to be seen as loyal supporters of Rome. They wanted to be good citizens. And it would have been considered unpatriotic to not participate in paying homage to Rome and the emperor. And it would have been considered atheistic to not pay homage to the local Asian deities. And so Revelation shows us that the power behind the throne, and of course this is Paul's point that in the New Testament point, that you know, Jesus' encounter with Satan, the one behind the throne is Satan. And here, the beast in Revelation 12, 8-9, is specifically controlled, the manifestation, the puppet of the devil himself. And the beast is further identified as a political, a military, a social, an ec economic power of universal proportions, which dominates the world. Of course, this fits Rome. And so John sees, he, in this, he sees a tragedy that the beast dies and comes back to life. And we believe this is a, a concerning Nero, a myth that arose about Nero, who committed suicide. And the idea came that he would actually rise from the dead, return to Rome, and seize the empire. And several emperors then are going to claim they are Nero. And the beast was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. That is, they worshipped him. And throughout Revelation, there is one answer, and only one answer, and that is the lamb. The lamb who is slain. So, for example, in chapter 5, verse 9, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. Who are these people? 
Well, of course, these are the Christians. This is the kingdom of God. They are the ones who reign through Christ. And John is declaring this reign begins now. The message is empire is Satan's tool for gaining allegiance. And only Christ can rescue from empire. And of course, the big question here, how does this apply to us today? I don't suppose any entity today identifies as empire. You know, perhaps the British Empire was the last to literally call itself an empire. And so it may be hard for us to recognize the beast. We may be in the belly of the beast and not know it. Just as the early Christians were often unaware. And John is bringing them to awareness. And so the very nature, the insidious nature of empire is that its subjects may not understand what they're up against. You know, maybe we in the United States, born as it was, in resistance to the British Empire, we may not acknowledge that instituting slave labor, partaking of genocide of native peoples, colonization of other lands, you know, we visit Hawaii quite often, and believe me, the Hawaiian natives still feel the oppression of colonization. But Alaska, the Philippines, that this very, you know, colonization, genocide, constitutes its identity as empire. And of course, our, the problem is empire enfolded within the church. That may be naming the beast even more difficult. The MAGA cult would equate American greatness with Christian greatness, melding church and empire. Or it may be that it's not any particular national entity, but global capital that represents empire in our day and age. You know, if empire is equated with power and money, maybe transnational corporations now control the bulk of wealth including the power of the media. You know, that's the problem in Revelation, that people are deluded by the beast. The beast has its own media matrix. And media today, in all of its various forms and shapes, determines our perception of reality, just as it did then. You know, you can take just the case of Rupert Murdoch. I think uh, uh, we can equate the rise of Margaret Thatcher in England, whether that was either good or bad, but Rupert Murdoch supported her and brought that about. We could say the same thing about Rudolph Giuliani. He was su very much supported by Rupert Murdoch and, of course, Donald Trump. But then look what M Rupert Murdoch is doing in Hong Kong, where he also has a media empire. You know, if we think we understand his politics, well, in Hong Kong, he's in support of the communist government. So perceptions may vary, but the point is that reality is obscured by the matrix of empire. And the only way we're going to get a handle on the truth is through the slain lamb. And of course, empire always undergirds the powerful. And the lamb then is with those who are perceived to be powerless. So what I'm saying to maintain that the focus on Christ or what we're calling Christocentrism contains the answer to empire, that's actually not initially very helpful. 
We need to explain that and qualify it because the failure of Lutheran Christocentrism in its resistance to German National Socialism uh, is clear. Luther affirmed the centrality of Christ. And this is captured in his slogan, Christ alone. And this is the culmination of his other slogans, Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone. And so Luther laid the foundation of this idea of focus on Christ, Christocentrism. And he acknowledged God suffered in Christ. And he insisted the cross is the only approach to God. I think this is all necessary. He explains in the Heidelberg Disputation, that person does not deserve to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. That is, he's arguing against natural theology in which we imagine we can come to God through human wisdom. He deserves to be called a theologian, however, who comprehends the visible and manifest things of God seen through suffering and the cross. And so he's going to talk about the theologians and the church that depends upon scholasticism, on natural theology. He's going to call these the theologians of glory. And the theologians of glory, they begin with their own wisdom and imagine they can come to God on the basis of the invisible things of God rather than what God has done in Christ through the suffering of the cross. And he says the result is then that people confuse good and evil. A theology of glory calls evil good and good evil. A theology of the cross, he says, calls the thing what it actually is. That is, we're only going to get our ethics straight, according to Luther, through the cross of Christ. We can't just set out and imagine we can figure this out. Now, a major problem with Luther, like Augustine, is that Luther held to the notion of two kingdoms. And his Christocentrism applied to the kingdom of God and not the temporal, the secular realm ordered through God uh, or through God-ordained government. And so, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, it may work in church, but it will not work on the battlefield, in the courtroom, or in the government's suppression of evil. The Christian lives in both of these realms, and so must sort out the one from the other, so as to avoid conflicted obligations. And the way to do this in a Lutheran understanding, is by recognizing Christian ethics and obligations are for the kingdom of heaven and not for the kingdom of this world. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, faced with the failure of the German church, accused it of being a silent witness to oppression, hatred, and murder, and failing to aid the weakest and most defenseless brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ. As six million Jews, you know, many other people with handicaps, gypsies, were slaughtered by the Third Reich. And even Jewish clergy were forced to resign. He says the silence of the church 
is complicit in the evil of Hitler. And the church, he says, was only concerned with its own safety, with its own material interests, and had by its silence become guilty for the loss of responsible action in society. And so faced with this failure, Bonhoeffer takes Luther's Christocentrism beyond Luther by grounding it in the incarnation of Christ. And this, I think, we need to add to our understanding of what it means to be centered in Christ. The incarnation is definitive of the center of God's activity. It is a singular reality. In other words, our tendency is to divide reality. But the most fundamental reality, the one true reality, is the reality of God who became human. This reality provides the ultimate foundation and the ultimate negation of everything that exists. That is, we affirm and deny reality according to Christ. Christian life and Christian ethics are not to be centered on some other world, but in this world. Bonhoeffer sees this split as giving rise to a split in ethics and a dividing up of Christian commitment. The Christian life becomes a means of escape, a kind of redemption myth, he says. Unlike believers in the redemption myths, Christians do not have an ultimate escape route out of their earthly tasks and difficulties into eternity. Like Christ, they have to drink the cup of earthly life to the last drop. And only when they do this is the crucified and risen one with them. And they are crucified and resurrected with Christ. Christ gives himself completely for the world. And the Christian is called not to another world, not to serve another kingdom, but to the, his kingdom, to this world. The world has no reality of its own independent from God's revelation in Christ. And it is a denial of God's revelation in Jesus to wish to be Christian, and this is Bonhoeffer's phrase, without being worldly. And what he means by worldly, we have to have a commitment to this world. He says, the earth that feeds me has a right to my work and my strength. I owe it faithfulness and thanksgiving. I should not close my heart to the tasks, pains, and joys of the earth. And I should wait patiently for the divine promise to be redeemed. But truly wait for it. And not rob myself of it in advance in wishes and dreams. It's not that Bonhoeffer gives up on heaven. But he thinks it wrong, indeed unchristian, to divert ourselves with thoughts of another world until we have fully satisfied the demands of this one. We can't have two ethics. We can't have two kingdoms. As Bonhoeffer writes, only when one loves life and the earth so much that with it everything seems to be lost at its end may one believe in the resurrection of the dead and a new world. Christ's death and resurrection, they do not point to life in some other place, but they speak of redemption and new life 
in the place he died, in the place he was raised. Only with this understanding can we recognize we're not to flee this world. We're not to tolerate the kingdoms of this world. But we are to suffer with Christ at the hands of empire. But we are to face an empire through his suffering, with his suffering. And this is redemption. This is what Paul says. Through the suffering of Christ, we extend the redemption of Christ to the world. And ethics willing to use evil on earth for the greater good in heaven is neither incarnational nor Christian. Rather than a divided reality or a division between heaven and earth, Bonhoeffer pictures all of reality centered on the incarnation of Christ. Christ opens up the world to us in a new way. We are no longer bound by alienation and isolation, but we're graced with a new form of human relatedness and community. Now that Christ has redeemed the world, a new humanity restored by the grace of God and exemplified by Jesus comes bursting onto the scene. And this is the kingdom of God, the church. Bonhoeffer replaces the dictum that we find in the Eastern church that in order that humans might become divine, he became human with the view that Christ's humanity makes true humanity possible. Now human beings as they were intended are exemplified by Jesus himself. Bonhoeffer has a couple of phrases he uses. Worldly Christianity is also captured in his notion of a religionless Christianity. And what he means by religion is religion is preoccupied with the otherworldly, with the heavenly, with personal salvation and the tendency to see God as the solution only to problems we cannot solve. Religionless or worldly Christianity is focused on new life with God and sharing in Christ's suffering. Where religion presumes to share in the power of this world, religionless Christianity embraces the reality of being pushed out of the world out of the world of power. He says God consents to be pushed out of the world and onto the cross. God is weak and powerless in the world and in precisely this way and only so at our side he helps us. Matthew 8:17 makes it quite clear that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence but rather by the virtue of his weakness and suffering. So where religion directs people in need to the power of God. You know, God is kind of like the deist God, the one that solves the, the God of the gaps, the problem of the gaps. He says the, the powerlessness and suffering of God are the only suffering, the only power that will help us. The suffering in and with the world though it speaks of a total commitment not to a divided reality not to a divided kingdom not to a divided ethic but to Jesus Christ alone and the reality of his incarnation 
at the same time through Christ there is a breaking open of the human eye, the ego that we're deluded by isolation, by alienation and Christ breaks open the path to others and our true humanity is recognized and comes to life in his humanity he says there is no way from us to others other than the path through Christ, his word and our following him and so religion, you know, in his phrase, is grounded in pride. It closes off suffering together with Christ. And thus, it closes off access to relationship and communion with God and others. We can commune with the world and its empires, or we can commune with God and his people and see people as they really are. The religious instinct is simply a formalization of the human instinct to acquire power over the eternal. Bonhoeffer comes to this. I think he got his PhD when he was 21. He's preaching in Spain. And he comes to this very early, talking about the role of the, the human instinct. It's pride. It's an isolating escape from suffering. That is, we would put off suffering we would put off taking up the cross of Christ. While true humanity is something shared and never solitary, and there is no such thing as an isolated, autonomous individual. And we realize this through sharing in the suffering of Christ. Jesus Christ, the truly human one, is the human being for others. And this human connectedness is the experience of the presence of God. This imminent experience, the experience of God in the world, is an experience of his transcendence at the same time. And so this isn't a rejection of God's good creation, nor is it the typical ecclesial predisposition to dominate it. God's presence is not in some highest, most powerful, and best being imaginable but rather new life in being there for others through participation in the being of Jesus in the world. This being for others. This is also the definition of the church. Bonhoeffer considers the German Protestant church, which joined itself to empire, to be no church at all. And even the confessing church, which arose in response to the failure of the German Protestant church, he says it's consumed with its own survival and thus has become incapable of bringing the word of reconciliation and redemption to the world. So the words we used before must lose their power, be silenced, and we can be Christians today in only two ways, through prayer and in doing justice among human beings. Only as the church is the church can it bring salvation to the world. All Christian thinking, talking, and organizing must be born anew out of that prayer and action. This will not and cannot arise, he says, from religion or the God of the religious imagination. We have to immerse ourselves again and again for a long time and quite calmly in Jesus' life, his sayings, 
his actions, his suffering and dying in order to recognize what God promises and fulfills. And so this filling out of Luther's Christocentrism, I believe this pits the Christian against empire. Whether we're talking about the empire of state, the empire of religion, the empire of wealth, in the willingness to share in the suffering of Christ and refusing the double standard of an otherworldly ethics. Because that double standard gave rise to the failure of the German Protestant church and it is the failure of the church throughout the ages to imagine that it can live in two kingdoms. There is only the kingdom of God and the kingdom of God is the one to which we owe our allegiance. And so Christ suffered under the Roman state and he suffered at the hands of the religious whether they were Jews or Roman religious and thus he instituted a new life of being there for others in the world rather than offering escape or reconciling himself to empire Christ challenged empire he defeated it in the manner of his life and death and resurrection. And this is the only challenge to empire that is available. He calls his followers likewise to overcome the world, not by being of the world, but by being in the world and being true to him. Christ, as a singular reality, opens God and the world to us simultaneously as it's in the world that God meets us and saves us. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares, or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.